What happens when people get evicted from their homes? Is it just another episode in the narrative of poverty? One more thing that poor people just have to deal with? Or is it the defining feature of poverty itself? The loss of mooring and place that keeps people from moving ahead. This is Detroit Today, and I'm Stephen Henderson, and we start our conversation today with the idea that eviction is a cause of poverty rather than a symptom. That's according to the author of a new book called Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. And what's more, Desmond says people with kids are much more likely to be kicked out of their homes than are single people. And he says mothers who've been evicted with their children often are depressed for years to come over the matter. All of this contributes to a downward downward spiral into a permanent state of poverty that ends up costing society more. Matthew Desmond joins me here today. Matthew, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, how you came across this uh, concept and this idea that eviction is not just a symptom of poverty. It's not just something that happens to poor people. It's one of the things, one of the most important things, in fact, in your book that keeps them poor. That's right. I started out because, you know, America has so much poverty and it's really different than other wealthy democracies for the depth and expanse of its poverty. And I wanted to understand that and I wanted specifically to figure out how housing uh, plays a role in driving poverty in the American city. So I spent a lot of time uh, living in poor neighborhoods and following families getting evicted from their homes. And, you know, uh, you know, it's just really clear to me after years and years of studying this that eviction is a cause, not just a condition of poverty. Families not only lose their homes, but they often lose their possessions, which are either kind of thrown from their homes or taken by movers. And sometimes they just can't keep up the payments, which movers require to store their things. The biggest eviction moving company in Milwaukee told me that about 70% of their eviction moves just get thrown in the dump. Children lose their schools. You know, families lose their communities and their opportunity to bond with their neighbors. We have really good evidence that workers lose their jobs after eviction. And anyone listening out there that has gone through something like that knows why. You know, it's a consuming, stressful, overwhelming event that can cause you to make mistakes on your job, show up late, uh, and eventually lose it. Yeah. Uh, then you have to recognize the effect that eviction has on your spirit, your, your uh, mental health. So we do. We do find that mothers who are evicted have higher rates of depressive symptoms two years later. Evictions that go through the court have a record, and just like a criminal record, can affect things like your access to government services or your job prospects. An eviction record could have real effects on your life too. It can affect your credit. A lot of landlords will turn you away if you have an eviction record. A lot of public housing authorities count evictions as strikes when you apply for public housing. And that's why we know evicted family move into uh, worse neighborhoods and worse housing after they're forced out. So you add all that up, and it's really hard not to conclude that eviction isn't just another kind of, um, another kind of slice, you know, another kind of cut right. in terms of poverty, but it's really casting people on a d- different and, and harder path. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to read a little bit from the prologue uh, in your book 
cold city. At the end, you say fewer and fewer families can afford a roof over their head. This is among the most urgent and pressing issues facing America today, and acknowledging the breadth and depth of the problem changes the way we look at poverty. For decades, we focused mainly on jobs, public assistance, parenting, and mass incarceration. No one can deny the importance of these issues, but something fundamental is missing. We've failed to fully appreciate how deeply housing is implicated in the creation of poverty. Not everyone living in a distressed neighborhood is associated with gang members, parole officers, employers, social workers, or pastors, but nearly all of them have a landlord. Let's talk about that landlord role uh, in your book, which is which I should tell the listeners is written in this wonderfully narrative uh, style. Uh, I, know, I know you are an academic and a scholar, uh, and and of course the the work is dutifully footnoted uh, and and written in that form. But it's also in this wonderfully accessible. Uh, language and voice, uh, and and you tell the story, the stories of uh, people who live in in uh, in in housing that is managed by landlords, and the relationships between the renters and the landlords sort of take center stage in your mm-hmm. in your stories. Mm-hmm. You know, they take center stage in the lives of many poor Americans. I still think that a lot of us that don't live in the inner city or don't live in trailer parks, think that the typical low-income family lives in public housing or benefits some way from housing assistance. But the opposite is true. Only about one in four families that qualify for any kind of housing assistance receive anything, which would be unthinkable in terms of distributing aid for other basic necessities, right? So what if we turned away three in four families that applied for food stamps, for example? But that's exactly how we treat housing in America. So today, most low-income families live completely unassisted in the private rental market. And you're right, it's become harder and harder for them to afford the roof over the head. We've reached a point in America where about half of all poor renting families in this country are spending at least 50% of their income on housing. And one in four of those families are spending at least 70% just on rent and utilities. So under those conditions, eviction has become inevitable. And I think that the book really kind of starts on the ground and ends on the ground. It kind of believes that, you know, showing the human cost of this problem, you know, showing people in their full complexity, not only landlords, but but tenants as well, um, is deeply connected to helping us understand this, you know, in an intimate way and is connected to reform. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what are the things that uh, this this book takes place uh, in, in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, is where right. you did the, the reporting and found the families who are, who are featured here. Talk about, um, talk about that community and the role that, uh, that this problem plays in that, in that, in that place in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, you know, Milwaukee is a city of about 105,000 renter households. And every year in that city, about 40 people a day are evicted from their homes. You know, they're evicted in the winter. They're evicted in the summer. They're evicted when it's cold and raining. They're evicted when it's warm. Um, That's a whole heck of a lot of people. Uh, But it's only formal court-ordered evictions. These are evictions that go through the court. And a lot of landlords I met, they had different ways of moving a family out. You know, some landlords would pay you if you uh, left by Sunday. I met a landlord that just takes your door off if you're behind. And we did a lot of work in our survey to kind of capture all those informal evictions and found that about one in eight 
of all renters in the city of Milwaukee experience a forced move every two years. It's an astoundingly high number. And I think that, you know, the numbers are one thing, but the stories are something else. And I, um, I'm thinking of Arlene, for example, who's mm-hmm. a single mom that I met in Milwaukee. And she was trying to raise two boys. And uh, she was living in a rundown two-bedroom apartment in a, in a very poor neighborhood in the fourth poorest city in the country, paying 88% of her income to rent, you know. And she was facing these terrible decisions, you know. Can I, can I afford to feed my kids or do I pay the rent, you know. Uh, should I pitch in some money for the funeral or pay the rent, you know. Under those conditions, eviction isn't, you know, the result of irresponsibility as much as inevitability. And it's blunting those children's capacity. And it's, it's, it's making moms like Arlene face truly terrible uh, decisions. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Matthew Desmond, the author of Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. We are talking about the role that eviction plays in poverty. Uh, is it a uh, episodic kind of thing or is it a defining feature of poverty? Matthew Desmond sort of casts it as a defining feature of poverty. One of the things that keeps people poor or causes their poverty. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. It's 313-577-1019. I want to read another uh, passage uh, from the book uh, and, and sort of change the, 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 the subject a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in a chapter called Hot Water, you talk about uh, the, the choices that landlords face when people fall behind. Mm. He said, when tenants fall behind, uh, he, Tobin, one of the, the landlords you profile here, had three options. He could let it slide and watch his income fall. He could begin eviction proceedings or he could start a conversation. Option one was a non-option. Tobin was a landlord to make a living, and if he was too lenient, he could lose his business. But Tobin also did not evict most tenants who owed him. Pushing tenants out and pulling new ones in cost money, too. In an average month, 40 of Tobin's tenants were behind. Nearly one-third of the trailer park, the average tenant owed $340. But Tobin only evicted a handful of tenants each month. A landlord could be too soft or too hard. The money was in the middle with the third route and his tenants and were grateful for it, though often not at first. The role of money here, uh, I think, really plays it really uh, plays an interesting uh, uh, part in the, in the narrative here. That sort of tension between the landlords and the tenants uh, defined by how much money can I get and uh, that that. That uh, that uncertainty about should I put this person out uh, boils down not to what effect will it have on that person's life, but what effect will that have on my business? It is a business, and you know, people like Tobin uh, got into it uh, to make a living. You know, and um, and I think that we let ourselves off the hook if we say, oh, you know, these tenants—they're just irresponsible, or oh, these landlords are just greedy. You know, the fact of the matter is it's much more complicated than that. And if we really want to understand the link between housing and poverty, we have to plumb that complication. And so the book works really hard to capture landlords' perspectives, to understand what they have to go through, to understand why they, why would you buy a trailer park? You know, what's in it for you? 
And what, what was in it for Tobin uh, was was a profit that was, um, in my in my estimation, uh, not modest. So Tobin's job was not easy. You know, he often confronted things that um, one confronts when living in a really uh, low-income trailer park, things like addiction and violence, things like people not being able to pay their rent often. Uh, he paid for funerals. He um, bailed tenants out of jail. Uh, he let tenants slide. He worked with some tenants. But he also evicted a fair amount, too. Uh, in the end, I reviewed Tobin's rent rolls and paid attention to missed payments and vacancies, his mortgage payments and tax records, and calculated that he took home about $470,000 a year. Wow. Um, after expenses. You know, that's about... 30 times what his tenants working minimum wage full-time took home and about 50 times what his tenants receiving disability took home every year. And so there is a business model um, at the bottom of the market. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Talk about Sharina, uh, Mm -hmm. who is another landlord who shows up throughout uh, the book. I thought thought your your portrayal of her also got to the human side of yeah. this, that the, these are not just, uh, the, 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 the landlords are not painted uh, as, as just sort of greedy monsters uh, in, in every case. Uh, they, have, they have struggles too. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, you know, Sharina showed me that very clearly. You know, Sharina was Arlene's landlord. She uh, owned 36 units, all in uh, inner city African-American communities. She had been a landlord for four years. Before that, she was a a public school teacher, an elementary school teacher. And she saw herself as a charitable businesswoman. And I saw Sharina buy Arlene groceries. I saw her let tenants move in with nothing. I saw her, um, you know, really work with tenants when they fell on hard times. And I saw her evict tenants when they called a building inspector to report housing violations. I saw her be... Um, callous with some tenants and and um, loving and generous with others. I, it is really complicated um, a relationship. And I think that you know the point right isn't that <laughs> there are some good landlords and bad landlords or good tenants and bad tenants. That's not the point. It's that this is housing, right? This is shelter. This is something that is a fundamental human need. Without stable shelter, everything else falls apart. We <laughs> we can't give kids an opportunity to stay in school and flourish. We can't give people an opportunity to stick around their communities and invest if we don't have stable shelter. So that thing, maybe that shouldn't come down to landlord's discretion. Maybe that shouldn't come down to, do you have a good landlord uh, or a callous one? This is something that's much more important um, that, that should be reduced to just, you know, a commodity that cashes out. Right. Um, and so what's the what's the turn that you think uh, cities like Milwaukee, cities like Detroit, uh, where I'm sure you could come and do uh, very similar work uh, to what you did in Milwaukee. What's the turn that you think we need to make in the way we think of this problem and how we how we address it? Yeah. So with respect to how we think about it, I think we need to have a conversation, a public conversation that addresses this question, is housing a right? You know, is access to decent, affordable, stable shelter, is that something that should be part of what it means to be an American? And I think we have to answer yes, just because it's so central to human flourishing. You know, we've affirmed provision in old age, access to decent education, um, you know, access to basic nutrition. 
We've affirmed those things as rights in this country because we believe without those, there's no chance at economic mobility and no chance at accessing the freedoms uh, our country offers. You know, most basically the freedom to better yourself, better your kids, invest in your community. And so I think that we should turn to to this conversation. Is housing a right? And there's a way to deliver on that. You know, and one way is to take this program that we already have, which is the housing voucher program, and expand it to all families below a certain income level. Uh-huh. And so that would mean like of someone like Arlene would not give 88% of her income to rent, but would spend 30% on it, which has long been our ideal in America, that grandmothers like Lorraine, who I met in the trailer park, would not have to kind of grow old, you know, spending 70% of their income to rent a trailer. Uh, instead, she'd spend 30%. And you could take that voucher and you could spend it uh, anywhere you'd like, as long as your housing wasn't too expensive or too run down. It would fundamentally change the face of poverty in America. Uh, homelessness would plummet. Evictions might become rare again, as they were. And, um, and these families would benefit in so many ways. We already know from research that when families finally get a housing voucher after years and years and years on a waiting list, they do one consistent thing, and they go to the grocery store, and they buy more food. Right. You know, and their kids become stronger and healthier. But kids like Arlene's kids aren't getting enough to eat because the rent eats first. We can do better as a country. Now, you know, cities are different, right? Like what, what works in Detroit might not work in New York City. You know, we need, you know, one city has to build, one city has to detro- destroy. But whatever our solution out of this mess, one thing is certain, we don't have to accept this. And I think we have to realize that we can't fix poverty in the country without fixing housing. And, and I would imagine that landlords might welcome that kind of change as well, given given the problems that you outline in the book that affect them. I mean, it's not it's not easy. It's not cheap. Uh, I, I don't imagine that they even feel good about the efforts that they have to make to put people out of their homes. If you had more access to housing vouchers, the landlords would benefit too. I remember one time Sharina was facing this um, situation where a man named Lamar in the book, who Uh is this gregarious, um, just kind of energetic single dad, you know, and he was was a double amputee, so he he was in a wheelchair, and he was trying to raise these two boys, you know, and he was like a – he was like the house all the neighborhood boys went to, you know, and they'd play cards, and he'd kind of mentor them, bring them up, you know, watch over them, uh, keep an eye on them. And he fell behind. And, you know, Sharina, you know, Sharina kind of loved Lamar. You know, she, she, she would say that, you know. Um, but when she was kind of facing this decision, you know, to evict Lamar or not, her and her husband, Quentin, were kind of debating it. And she told Quentin, you know, I love Lamar, but love don't pay the bills. Uh, the last time I checked, the mortgage company still wanted their, their check. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's, that's, that's right. Landlords do struggle with these decisions too. And I think a universal housing uh, pro- program would give us a chance to um, rebalance the landlord-tenant relationship to provide landlords a living, but also provide tenants a home. And look, if we're going to house most of our low-income families in the private market, landlords have to be at the table. Right. Uh, let's talk about what the floor right now is for housing yeah. vouchers. Uh, why does someone like Arlene, for instance, not qualify. We haven't made an investment as a nation in in this good, you know. And so the reason isn't because she doesn't qualify. The reason isn't that she's rejected. There's just literally not enough aid to go around. 
And so, you know, the waiting list for public housing, for example, in some of our bigger cities is not counted in years. It's counted in decades. So if you're like a single parent in Washington, D.C., and you apply for public housing, you might be a grandparent by the time your application comes up. I remember going uh, with Arlene once who just stopped by the housing authority on a whim, you know, just to apply, just kind of, you know, what the heck, you know. And um, she was told by the woman behind the glass that, you know, the list is frozen. The list is frozen. And what she meant was, you know, we're not accepting any more applications because we already have a list of over 3,000 people that have applied for housing assistance years ago. So if Arlene wanted a housing voucher, what she'd have to do is wait several years until the list unfroze, then wait another several years until her name made it to the top of the pile. And then she would just have to pray that the person reviewing her application would ignore all the evictions that she'd collected while trying to make ends meet with very little income uh, in the private market. Right. And so right. that's that's the situation we're facing today. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break. <clears throat> when I come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Matthew Desmond, the author of Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. And we will get to your calls. Jelly in Detroit, we will get to you. And if you want to join the conversation, tell us how you think housing affects the transformation of Detroit. Is there a way to make sure current residents aren't evicted as housing becomes desirable and less affordable? 313-577-1019. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Music. Culture. Arts. News. Local. Global. The new sound of public radio. 1019 WDET Detroit. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here today. My guest is Matthew Desmond, the author of Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. We are talking about housing. How important is housing in the picture of poverty? How how much does housing matter to whether people are poor or not? Does housing define the contours of poverty? Uh, give us a call if you want to join the conversation. 313-577-1019. What do you think about the housing picture here in Detroit and how it relates to the city's deep poverty? Do you think there is a way, are there things that we should be doing to make sure that current residents, uh, people who have low rents and accessible housing here in the city aren't evicted as housing becomes desirable and less affordable as rents go up in places like downtown and midtown. The number is 313-577-1019. It's 313-577-1019. Matthew Desmond, uh, I want to talk about gentrification and the, the way that cities like Detroit are changing uh, as people, uh, young people in particular, become more interested in urban living. They come into cities like Detroit, places that were left behind a long time ago, rents go up and people lose their housing. Is that something that you saw sort of going on in Milwaukee as well? Was that driving some of the problem here? You know, gentrification is something that a lot of cities are facing. Uh, Some cities are facing it neighborhood by neighborhood. Some cities, the whole city is being gentrified and becoming unaffordable to the middle class. Um, You know, if we care about displacement, if we care about eviction, Um, Most evictions in every city that I've looked at are taking place in very poor, ungentrifying neighborhoods. 
And, you know, they're not taking place in uh, neighborhoods that are transitioning as much as they are in taking place in neighborhoods that a lot of the, uh, you know, so-called gentrifiers don't want to live in. You know, this is a this is a poverty story. And this is a fact that, um, you know, even in some of our worst neighborhoods, um, people can't afford uh, to live. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that percentage that you talked about uh, that people spend on rent, uh, one example that jumps out to me in the book is uh, someone who at the end of paying rent and, and taking care of everything else had to live on just, I think it was $5 a day. Um, uh, that's unimaginable, I think, to most people. Yeah, I mean, when you take someone like Lorraine in the trailer park, you know, so Lorraine was a grandmother. Uh, she received disability for a childhood accident. And you're right, you know, after uh, paying her rent and just her rent, uh, she was left with just about $5 a day to rent a trailer in a trailer park that the city of Milwaukee at that time considered an environmental biohazard because it had so many code violations. Lorraine couldn't afford to pay her rent and her, her gas bill. And so for a long time, she didn't have uh, heat or hot water uh, in her trailer. And uh, this also included when she was descending uh, into the winter and tried to just ignore the fact that she, you know, was seeing her breath uh, on the inside of a trailer. Um, Milwaukee, like other cities, has a moratorium on disconnection, heat disconnection, but you have to be connected to benefit from the moratorium. So what a lot of tenants do is they kind of pay their landlord in the winter uh, when the moratorium is in, and then they switch sides in the spring and pay their utility guys to uh, try to get back in the black with them. And so every year in Milwaukee, evictions spike in the summer and they drop in the winter because tenants that are just strapped by these two costs can't serve uh, both masters. Yeah. Uh, one of the narratives that's unfolding here in Detroit also is around uh, water. Uh, and, mm. and one of the things that I find really interesting about the language you use about housing, it's really similar to the, some, the conversations that we're having about water here in Detroit. A lot of people can't afford uh, to pay their water bills. And right. th there, are, there are an increased number of shutoffs uh, for a number of reasons right now. But we are talking about whether water is a right, right that people ought to have, uh, uh, whether they can pay or not. Uh, you, you seem to be making that same argument with regard uh, to housing, which sort of takes the water argument and makes it a little, a little broader, I guess. I think so. And obviously, we need to be smart about how to spend public funds, and we need to be efficient, and we need to do this with the utmost responsibility. But you, you can't live without water. You know, you can't have a flourishing life without water uh, or housing. And if that's the case, that for me is a foundational argument about asserting uh, our rights to these basic necessities. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Shelley in Waterford. Shelley, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. Hi. Mm, yes, thank you for taking my comment. Uh -huh. um, I am concerned about where I per, um, currently live. I have watched an influx of low-income people move in, and because of that, the neighborhood has gone down. And I do live in a trailer park. Um, it used to be a beautiful neighborhood with double-wides. And now uh, we have a clientele of people that are HUD housing, maybe, or, or low-income, and I've watched them... Uh, deteriorate my very block. Yeah. And uh, my concern is if you give a $5 bill to one person and they use it wisely and you give another $5 bill to another person and they just waste it, 
how can we even the score for what people can afford and what they cannot afford and the classes of people in housing? Because truly, I would love to move to a better neighborhood when, now that I see this happening, and yet I can't afford it. And I feel kind of trapped in the uh, poverty line coming towards me. Yeah. And I just wonder if uh, the government could ever figure out a way to help all people with uh, the discretion of fair housing in the, in the sense of who and what, you know, is equally... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of nervous. No, no, I think I, um, I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I, I'm not... Uh, I really love my home, and I bought it brand new, and hmm. I'd love to stay there, but I am being challenged when I see 40 bags of garbage being dumped on the curb and rats jumping out. I'm concerned when the trailer park raises my rent because I file a complaint. Um, I don't know how uh, to really make this fair for everyone, but I do know that it is, um, it is not like I'm going to earn a lot more money in my lifetime. Right. I am grateful to work. I am grateful that I have everything I have. But right. I feel like I'm losing it. Yeah. And the cost of everything going up, my wages don't go up just because groceries went up and the heat went up. Things don't go up for me like it does around me. And therefore, it's forcing more and more people <laughs> to yeah. uh, encroach. And I'm just—I just would love to hear your feedback. Yeah, no, Shelley, thank you very much uh, for your call, <clears throat> Matthew Desmond. She sounds like uh, uh, one of the people in your book—that—that that sort of swirl of of challenge and uh, uh, difficulty that surrounds the question of where you live. I think Shelley um, raises this. Um, indictment to us as as a nation, which is, uh, why do we settle for this? Why do we tolerate this? We don't have to tolerate this. We can do better. You know, this wealthy nation, um, you know, poverty persists here, not for lack of resources. We lack something else. And I think that, you know, one of the things that she brought up was, you know, the fact that her rent is being raised because she lodges a complaint. Right. And, you know, that's really troubling. And um, there are laws on the books in cities like Detroit that prevent people from um, living in substandard housing, uh, having garbage around them, uh, things like that. But when those folks are so rent-strapped, when they are paying so much of their income to rent, or maybe like Shelley, where a small increase in rent can really throw off, you know, the family budget, um, those rights kind of go away, you know, because tenants exercise those rights at risk of things like eviction, at risk of things like rent hikes. And we need to take a really hard look at that at that problem. Yeah. I will tell you there's good news here, though. And the good news is that we as a nation have taken really big steps in the right direction when it comes to housing over the last several generations. And I, when, you know, when we talk about poverty in America, it can often be really uh, gloomy and, and leave us feeling, gosh, does anything work? And a lot of stuff does work. You know, housing vouchers do work. We've made giant leaps forward in terms of housing quality um, in this country. But now we're facing with this other problem, which is affordability. And that problem, like Shelley Ray's, is connected to things like the degree to which you invest in your neighborhood, housing problems, and your the your access to your rights, the, the degree to which you can exercise uh, those rights. Sure. Uh, let's uh, go back to the phones here. Greg in Detroit. Greg, welcome to Detroit Today. Howdy. <clears throat> How are you guys? Today? Good. Uh, great. Um, I happen to know for a fact that 
if you can show me five people out of a hundred or out of a thousand people in, in the city of Detroit who know who is the director of the public utility commission is <laughs> or where any of the people on the public utility commission are, when do they meet? Um, when they announce they're going to have a meeting about rate hikes, they'll say, well, it's going to be at Ubley, Michigan at <laughs> 6 o'clock. Right, right. Okay, most people don't know where Ubley is. Or people don't know, uh, Greg, about the housing commission that we have well, here in Detroit. Same thing, Well, right? housing, here's another thing. If I'm paying a surcharge, you're paying a surcharge, the lady in the trailer park's paying a surcharge, or everyone in that trailer park is paying a surcharge. I've been a part of a... Con- in, in farm country, in Kingston County, you have a co-op. So nobody's gas gets cut off. Nobody's lights get cut off. Right. And they come together. That's a that's a really interesting that's a really interesting example, uh, Greg. Uh, and thank you for raising that, Matthew Desmond. Uh, let me ask you about that. What's what's the power that tenants have, uh, like Greg is talking about? They're sort of banding together, working together, to be sure that they don't uh, become victims of, you know, uh, landlords who are sort of unscrupulous or, or that they don't, uh, get evicted. What, what's the, what's, is there an idea there that we ought to be building on? Yeah. I mean, this country has, um, one example after another of tenants binding together to organize against, uh, rent hikes that they thought were unfair, right. unsanitary housing conditions to, um, to kind of take ownership over certain communities. I think that renters today don't see themselves as a class, you know, with a shared interest. And um, and, uh, and that, was, that used to be different right. several generations ago. You know, Greg brought up a co-op. And around this country, you can find examples of, um, of really wonderful outcomes of this kind of organizing from tenant co-ops uh, to community land trusts to environmentally sound public housing a lot of this stuff is dotting uh, the landscape, but I think that Greg is unique, like he pointed out, um, in his level of community investment. Yeah. And I think that we do need we do need more more of that. The trouble is, you know, a lot of these folks are living in neighborhoods that have been abandoned by the city and the state uh, for years and years and years, and uh, abandoned by business, and are beset with a lot of problems. And uh, like Shelley mentioned in the last call. You're not really looking to invest in that kind of neighborhood, you know. You're looking to get out. Yeah. And um, and that I think gets in the way of really drilling down and saying, you know what, this is my home. I want to work with other people to make it better. Yeah. Okay. Matthew Desmond, author of Evicted: Poverty and Profit in the American City. You are going to be at the Literati Bookstore in Ann Arbor on March 16th uh, for a reading. So uh, anyone who wants to. Discuss more of this with Matthew Desmond. Go to Literati Bookstore, one of my favorite places, in fact, Mm. in Ann Arbor. Uh, Matthew Desmond, thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks. Uh, Love your city. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Up next, we are going to talk about the new superintendent of Detroit Public Schools and an effort in the legislature to take away the rights that teachers might have to strike. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Today. 